In my last year in high school, I had to take a course in oral French. And part of the exercises that we had to do quite often was to listen or try to listen to two of us talking to one another in French. And I remember one particular occasion when one rather uh, learned bookwormish type of guy got up and came out with another ambitiously long statement in French. The other guy who was chosen to enter into this dialogue was uh, somewhat of a lazy but a bit more of an astute guy. And so he simply said, mais pourquoi? Now for the uh, illiterate French like me, it means but why? So number one student again tries with a long laborious answer and the second guy says, mais pourquoi to that as well? Well, after this had gone back three and four, finally, the, the teacher finally caught on as to what was going on and came to the rescue of the first teacher while the rest of us were busy trying to suppress our giggles because we knew very well what was going on. It's very easy to say me pourquoi. It's a lot harder to give answers. Now, in the case of the classroom exercise, of course, the purpose for the me pourquoi was simply to irritate. It wasn't born out of any real desire to find out what the other guy had to say in answer to the question. Sometimes that's the way it is in life. There are some questions that come to us in life that are primarily intended to irritate us and not because the person who's asking the question really wants any information. And in all of these series of messages we were looking at on tough questions, we are really not interested in that kind of a person. For we said, we do not have a responsibility to cater to intellectual arrogance, but we do have a responsibility to cater to intellectual integrity. For there are some people who do ask me pourquoi, but they ask it with a tremendous amount of sincerity, and the answers do mean a lot to them. And so far in our series on tough questions, we've looked at six questions so far. Six difficult to answer but important questions. We began by looking at this whole matter, isn't Christianity narrow-minded to say that it's the only way to God? Secondly, we looked at the whole issue, isn't the Bible full of errors and contradictions? Thirdly, isn't the resurrection a myth? Then we took a break for a while and came back to the fourth, fifth, and sixth ones. Doesn't science disprove Christianity? And in that, we basically looked at three different areas. Creation versus evolutions, arguments for the existence of God, and arguments for the possibility of miracles. That's as far as we've got, and it now sets the stage for probably the single most often asked tough question. And that has to do with the whole issue of the problem of evil. A loving God, and yet there is so much evil, so much pain, and so much suffering in this world. The classical philosophical statement of the problem goes something like this. And after listening to Ravi five times, you ought to be a little bit more comfortable with philosophical arguments. It basically says this way. Okay, there's a lot of evil in this world. There's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. So God, if he exists at all, either is a powerful God who can do whatever he wants, but then he's not loving and good, because obviously he's not removing evil from this world. Or he's a loving and a good God, but he can't be powerful, because he wants to remove the evil, but obviously he's not able to do so. Or you have a third option, he's neither powerful nor loving and good. But those are the only three options open to you. The option of Christianity is not open, which is that he is both all-powerful and loving and good in the presence of evil. That's the classical philosophical statement of the problem, and it's been around for centuries. So obviously we're not going to solve it in 35 minutes. Modern forms of the argument go something like this. In 1981, a Jewish man by the name of Kushner, Rabbi Kushner, wrote his book, When Good Bad Things Happen to Good People. Here are some of the conclusions he comes up with. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. There are some things God simply does not control. God is a concerned spectator, but he's not an active participant. 
And you know what his advice to us is? Please forgive God and love Him even though we know that He's not perfect. That book received rave reviews by liberal Christians and Jewish theologians. What's even more disturbing is that some Christians take the same opinion. Scott Peck, a man whose writings have stimulated me quite a bit in the last two couple of years, wrote his first book, The Road Less Travel, when he wasn't a Christian. Ironically, the second book he wrote after he became a Christian was where the theology becomes very poor. But that's okay, he's a man who's learning, like all of us. But this is what he says, there are three major different living theological models of evil. The final model, that of traditional Christianity, I label diabolical dualism. Here evil is regarded as being not of God's creation, but a ghastly cancer beyond his control. So it seems that modern writers, Christian and Jewish, at least at the liberal end of the spectrum, have espoused one particular option that philosophy opened to them. They have chosen a loving God, but sadly one who is not all-powerful. And therefore a lot of things that happen in this world are out of his control. In fact, Peck goes on to say in his second book, all God can do is to stand by and look helplessly at evil. It's up to us. A lot of thinking, sensitive people who will never write books like Kushner and Peck, who will never philosophize like the ancient Greeks, still feel that way at times. In fact, quite often, isn't it? In the face of this much pain and evil, it does seem that God is somewhat limited in his power to do something about evil. Now, I want to tell you something. This argument is a very, very powerful argument. And we must recognize it. But the key is to recognize that the power of the argument does not lie in its intellectual consistency. It lies in the power that it has to touch our feelings. I will not forget the first time this came home to me. 1977, the city of Calcutta. I'd never been there even though I'd grown up in my life there. And Ravi and I went there for the 25th anniversary of the uh, Youth for Christ in India. And we were going to be speaking then. We had morning workshops and each one of us was speaking one night. The night that we were not speaking, all the speakers who were not on the platform took teams of 6 to 10 to 12 people and fanned out into the city in various small churches to, to conduct services there. I remember the night I went with a group of five or six people and the church that I was to speak in was several miles away and we had to go through many of the really terrible slum areas in Calcutta. In fact, this one was situated close to a slum. And of course, I was watching all of this as I was driving there. And we got there about half an hour before I was supposed to speak and I was pacing the floor up and down in the back hallway trying to review my sermon but I wasn't really having much success because the misery that was the city of Calcutta was slowly beginning to descend upon me. And I began to feel despair for the first time in my life. I mean real despair to the point where I said Christianity doesn't make any sense at all. It is absolutely irrelevant to the misery that is around me in Calcutta. I don't remember today how I snapped out of it. But that was the grace of God. In those days I didn't keep track of my experiences the way I do now because now I've known that God teaches me through those. But I'm sure if we had time, several of you could stand up and give me your own testimonies of how you have been overcome by the power of evil emotionally. And in an attempt to answer questions on the problem of evil, we must never deny the emotional power of that problem. It is real. Let's never attempt to answer this problem of evil but by minimizing the suffering and by attempting to come across with one, two, three types of easy answers. Let's acknowledge the emotional power. But having done so, if it is raised as an intellectual obstacle to even considering the claims of Jesus Christ, then we can and must give an answer. And intellectually, the problem is a lot easier to answer than emotionally. 
although it doesn't seem that way at first. For you see, there is a fundamental flaw that the popular arguments from evil uh, contain, but we don't see them, they are hidden. They all contain within them, and even the philosophical argument I gave you, contains within it a basic assumption that maximum goodness means maximum pleasure with no pain or suffering. Once you have made that assumption and it is hidden in the argument, then of course it's very easy. Hey, presto, since there is evil, obviously God isn't good. But it never pauses to ask the original question, how valid is the assumption that maximum good means no, no pain and all pleasure? That's the real question that we have to look at. And so we focus the question before us a little bit more. It is to try and give a reasonable answer which shows that the Christian concept of an all-powerful and yet an all-good and loving God is indeed not inconsistent with the presence of evil and pain and suffering in this world. Now, this does not mean that all questions will disappear. There will be many more to which we have to say, may poor quote. But remember what we are trying to do in these whole series. We are not trying to win every argument with people. We are trying to remove the roadblocks to the cross. Our job is to get people to give a hearing to the gospel. And to do that, we need to be intellectually consistent to the point where they can at least be willing to examine the claims of Christ. And we're going to answer this question in four stages. Each answer is going to raise a question which will take us to a deeper level of the answer and we'll build it in four stages. Okay, the very first one is this. The existence of evil does not prove that God doesn't exist. To some people, the very fact that there is so much pain and suffering in this world is automatic proof that God doesn't exist. This one is the easiest to answer. So if you ever come across this, I would suggest and approach something like this, which is to say, okay, let's assume God doesn't exist. Well, if God didn't exist, everything that we have in this world around us today is a product of time and chance over a long period of time. If that's true of the world in general, it's true of every event that has taken place in this world. There are no such things then, therefore, as good events and bad events, or right events or wrong events. They all are events that have simply happened. Some events happen to cause pleasure, other events happen to call, cause pain, but they are really the same. There's nothing to prefer one over the other if everything is simply the product of time and chance. So in other words, if you assume that God doesn't exist, then evil doesn't exist. But of course, if evil doesn't exist, how can you prove the, use the existence of evil to prove that God doesn't exist? It's a circular argument. In order to define something as evil, you mean you automatically assume that there are some things called good and some things called evil, which of course doesn't exist in a world that has purely evolved out of time plus chance. And a very vivid illustration of this comes from the pen of Warren Wearsby. After Kushner wrote his book, Wearsby wrote a book in response to that. Kushner's book was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Wearsby wrote the book when, God, when Bad Things Happen to God's People. And he says... Pause for a minute. Even the fact that Kushner can make a title, book title like that, when bad things happen to good people, immediately tell us he believes four things. First of all, he believes that there are some things called bad and some things called good. He uses both the words in the title. Secondly, he believes that people are important because he didn't write a book when good things happen to bad flowers or bad things happen to good flowers. We're only concerned when those things happen to people. That automatically assumes people are more important. Thirdly, it assumes that this universe has some order in it. Because bad shouldn't be happening to good people. Therefore, let's find an answer. And fourthly, it assumes that life is worth living. 
Because if life wasn't worth living, why bother writing a book? Just end it. So you see, the very fact that that question was asked says that the person has to believe in good and bad, or right and wrong, in the value of human beings, in order in the universe, and the meaning of life. But all four of those things have no basis for belief if the world simply happened by chance. So that's the first level of the argument. Now somebody may come back and say, okay, okay, I admit it. I admit it that if there is evil in the world, I can't use it to prove that God doesn't exist. But if God existed and evil exists, and you tell me that God created everything, well, doesn't that mean that God created evil? Well, how do you answer that question? That's the next level at which we respond. That question assumes something about evil that is not right. It assumes that evil is something concrete and positive like this watch and therefore something that has to be created by God like good. But if we pause for a few minutes and think a little bit carefully, we will find that evil is not something that can exist on its own as good can and therefore something that has to be created. Evil actually is the name that we give to some a situation when a certain good is absent. The good has to be there first for us to be even able to say that such and such a thing is evil. Now let me illustrate that for you in a minute. To put it another way, evil is inherent in the very creation of good. It doesn't have to be created separately because actually it can't be created separately. Let's take blindness for example. Blindness is a terrible evil. All kinds of people are suffering from it. But tell me, why is blindness an evil? It is only because there is such a thing called sight, which is good, isn't it? If this good thing called sight didn't exist, then the absence of sight could not be considered evil. That's why we think blind human beings is an evil, but do we get upset because a stone can't see? I mean, stones can't see. Stones are blind, aren't they? But the reason we don't get upset about stones not being blind is because stones were never intended to be blind. God never made a stone that could see. The good had to be made first for us to be even able to say there's evil because evil is the absence of good. And evil cannot be created directly. There's no way to create something called blindness without ever creating something called light and sight. Think about that for a minute. So evil really doesn't exist. It doesn't have to be created. It is implicit in the creation of goodness. Another very easy way to see this from our own human experience again comes from C.S. Lewis's pen. And I've changed it and modified it a little bit so that <coughs> we can bring it down to where we are. Ask yourself this question. Have I ever done anything? Anything. Have I ever done anything? Or do I know anybody who's ever done anything for no other reason other than that action is bad? We've done a lot of things for no other reason other than the action is good. We don't want to do it. We don't feel like doing it. But we do it because it's good. Because an action is good is often sufficient reason to do it. There's a blind man who needs to get across Islington Avenue. You may not feel like helping him across. But if somebody says, why should I do it? If you say, because it's good to help a blind man, nobody needs any more explanation. We do good things for no other reason than it is good. But think for a minute and you will find that you never do anything just because it's bad. Let's go back to the blind man on Islington Avenue. Let's say somebody trips him instead of helping him across. Now, that's a bad action. We all agree it's bad. But why would they do it? Do you think a person would trip a blind man across Islington Avenue just because it's bad to do so? Not really. Try and come up with all kinds of excuses or reasons. Somebody may say, well, just to get some laughs. And people do get laughs out of things like that. Some do. But pause for a minute and ask yourself the question, what is so wrong about wanting to laugh and enjoy humor? That's God's creation. 
God is the one who gave us the capacity to laugh. God is the one who created humor, if you will. Or you might say, well, no, not because of laughter. Maybe he just had a dare. Maybe some of his friends were hiding around the corner watching to see if this guy was macho enough. But then why would a guy want to be macho? Presumably to be accepted. But what's so wrong about wanting to be accepted? God made us community creatures. You keep trying and I'll challenge you. If we had the time, we could dialogue back and forth. You will not be able to come up with any reason that at its root in itself is not a good reason. The evil lies in the fact that the good is attempting to be got in a wrong way or a forbidden way. So either way, you can see that evil does not stand on its own. It is not a thing to be created. The good is what is created. The absence of that good in many situations is what we call evil. So God didn't have to create evil. He created good and inherent in that is the possibility of evil. Now if you ask the question, how come that which was simply a possibility or inherent, what made it an actuality? How come that which was possible became actual? Then the scriptures tell us that God did not create evil. It resulted from the free will decisions of created beings. First of all, there was Lucifer. Scriptures don't say too much about Lucifer, except that such a being existed uh, in tremendous splendor and beauty and majesty and wisdom. Was able to go into the very presence of God. But something we have to note is that as soon as Lucifer existed, immediately there was a possibility that existed along with it. Lucifer, because he was a free will creature, could either put God first or himself first. I mean, that choice was there as soon as Lucifer was created. And the scriptures tell us that Lucifer didn't do what he was supposed to. He chose to at least thought he was equal with God. And so he said, I will ascend. And as a result of that pride and the evil act of rebellion that was prompted by pride entered into this world. Then we are told that when God made Adam and Eve in his image, and part of that image was the moral image and the volitional image, the ability to choose, that this Lucifer seduced them into using their free will to assert independence of their God. As a result of that, look at all the things that happened and you'll have no trouble realizing where much of the problem of this world came from. First of all, we're told that Adam and Eve realized they were naked and tried to hide themselves from one another. They were no longer comfortable with who they were. Psychological evils entered this world at that moment. Secondly, they hid from God. And when man was separated from God, he opened the door to all kinds of spiritual evil within his life. Thirdly, they began to blame one another. Scapegoating. Conflicts came into this world from that time on. Fourthly, as a result of the curse upon the ground and the curse upon the woman in bearing children, their primary task of bearing children, raising children and providing for them was no longer an unmixed pleasure. Vocational and ecological distortions entered the world at that point. Thorns, thistles, etc. And lastly, God said, dust you are and to dust you will return. Sickness and death came into this world. And of course, since every one of us is descended from that Adam and Eve, all of us are now born into a world that is both internally conditioned and environmentally conditioned with actual evil, not just potential evil. But it came about as a result of the free will decision of created beings. Now, some of you may say, well, just a minute. That's unfair. Why should I pay the price for Adam's sin? You know, the Bible tells us that Adam was not only the first man, but he was also the representative man. And when the Bible says it was representative man, it means that he was what statisticians would call a 100% perfectly uh, statistical sample. If you were there, you would have done the same thing. That's what that doctrine means. So every one of us is marked by these things. Okay, now we move to the next stage. Okay, let's assume that God 
didn't create evil and it came about as a result of the free will decisions of creatures. Why didn't God just intervene to cancel all of the evil effects of their free will actions? That way, they would still have had free will, but he wouldn't have let them let the effects take over. The answer to that question is simply this, that the consequences of a free will action are bound up in the free will itself. First, a semi-humorous illustration, and then a little bit more of a rigorous analysis of the same problem. Let's say you take your five-year-old son into the living room and say, look at that vase. We've saved a long time to buy that vase. It's there for flowers. There's lots of water in it as well. And we don't want you, Johnny, running through this room like you normally do, because if you knock that vase over, you might break the vase and you might spill water all over this carpet. So off you go. A gleam comes into Johnny's eyes and he starts moving towards that vase. And you know that children do that. And he starts playing with it. He reaches out for it. He's about to dump it over. But you see, you were actually ready for that. You really didn't leave the room at all. You had just hid yourself around the corner and you had a telescoping net hidden behind your back. And just at the moment when he was about to turn the vase over, out went the net and you caught it. And you put it back again. You told Johnny not to do it and you walk away. Johnny looks around for a few minutes, doesn't see you anywhere. Back he goes towards the vase, picks it up and starts turning it over. Aha, but you were just hidden yourself in a different place this time. Out comes the net, whoop, just in time and you catch the vase. Now, when this has gone on about 5 or 6 or 10 or 15 times, all of a sudden you see two things have happened. Johnny doesn't have free will anymore, does he? He really doesn't have free will as far as the vase is concerned. Not only that, the situation has changed from a moral situation to a non-moral game. Because now when Johnny goes to the vase, what's in his mind has nothing to do with the commandment not to touch it. The only question is, what new strategy is daddy going to come up with this time to catch the vase? It's become a game. The only way Johnny can retain his free will and the only way the situation can retain moral sense to it is if daddy doesn't intervene with the net but deals with the consequences. See, the consequences are an inherent part of the free will. You take away the consequences, you take away the free will. It was C.S. Lewis, I think, who first developed this argument a little bit more rigorously. So will you follow me with that? The point he was making was simply this. God cannot intervene to stop all effects of man's free will choices without at the same time destroying his freedom. To do this, he developed a concept called limited omnipotence, which is very important for us to understand. Uh, Jamie is here, he and I were talking about it once in the hall, uh, because a kid in school asked him this question. So you see, this isn't just up there for the philosophers. Grade 10, 11, 12 kids are running into these kinds of situations. What do we normally mean by omnipotence? By omnipotence, we mean a power to do everything. And because God is omnipotent, well, obviously God can do everything. Then you get into all these stupid questions, you know. Can God make a square circle? And we think, the questioner thinks he has said something very wise in that statement. (laughs) Actually, God cannot make a square circle, not because God is not omnipotent, but because when you understand what square means, and when you understand what circle means, a square circle isn't a thing. A square circle is a logical contradiction. And even omnipotence cannot do that which is inherently or logically contradictory. Because logically contradictory things don't exist. They are merely that, logical contradictions and therefore impossibilities. Miracles are possible but not self-contradictory things. So God can make a steel axe head float like he did in the Old Testament. No problem for him. That's a miracle. 
But God, even God cannot make the axe go up and down at the same time. He can make it either go up or come down. Please yourself. But once you understand what up means, and once you understand what down means, it is not possible for a thing to go up and down at the same time. To say that God can't do it, you haven't dismissed God's omnipotence, you've just revealed your own ignorance in making that statement. Now, this question of limited omnipotence has to be applied to free will. To insist that God can give man and woman free will, and yet eliminate the possibility of them using that will to do something other than obey Him, that's a logical contradiction, and therefore it is beyond the purvey even of omnipotence. Let's elaborate this a little bit further. First of all, freedom means freedom to choose. Freedom to choose means you need alternatives external to yourself. And so freedom basically requires the creation of an external environment that contains alternatives. A second reason for the existence of an external environment can be seen by the fact that God didn't create just one free will being. He created a community, Adam and Eve, immediately a community and a few other people. Now, think for a minute. If there is more than one person and they have to communicate with each other, then you need an external environment. Because if your thoughts were directly present to my own thoughts without the medium of an external environment, how could I separate my thoughts from your thoughts? You may be sitting down there right now, Eleanor. Maybe Eleanor is thinking about Florida right now, a beach in Florida. I'm thinking about the logical answer to the problem of evil. If the Eleanor's thoughts about the beach in Florida could present itself to my own mind without any external medium, how could I tell which is my thought? But if she gets up there and uses the airwaves to set the airwaves in motion by making the statement, boy, you should see this beautiful beach in Florida, and those airwaves start pounding on my eardrum, and sensors in my brain begin to pick that up and then create the picture in my mind. Now I do have both the pictures. I've got the picture of the Florida beach and I have my logical arguments on the problem of evil. Only this time I know Eleanor is responsible for the beach. So I will say to her, please sit down, listen to the sermon, and we'll talk about the beach afterwards. <laughs> but you see the point that I'm making. In order to have free will and in order to have communication, we must have an external environment. So that's the first point. The second point is that if we are to have free will, this environment must be relatively fixed. What do I mean by that? If I were the only person alive on the face of this earth, I could command all the trees to gather around me whenever I was, needed some shade. I could command right now the wind to start blowing in a particular direction, just over here. You know? But what if I'm not the only person? What if you wanted the wind to blow over there and I wanted it to blow over here? What if you wanted the same tree to go over your head and me over my head at the same time? Can't be done, you see. One or the other's free will will be violated. And therefore, this environment is not only external to us, but it has to be a fixed environment, a relatively fixed environment. Now, once we conclude that freedom requires and community requires an external fixed environment, then it is quite easy to see that this fixed universe cannot be equally convenient for all people at all times. For example... If I am going from A to B and I am going downhill, it's easy for me. But if you happen to be coming from B to A, you have no choice but to walk uphill. The same plot of ground that is downhill for me has to be uphill for somebody else. Two of you walk into a plane. You both want the aisle seat. There's only one aisle seat left. It's a fixed environment. You can't command another aisle seat to appear. 
immediately there's a choice, isn't there? The two people can deal with it courteously, in kindness, or they can deal with it rudely. And there is no way for free will beings to be told what they have to do, or, or to be made to do one of those particular things. That's the key point here that he's talking about. Thus, possibility of sin becomes inherent in the creation of an external environment. There are many, many other illustrations of this. The possibility of pleasure involves the possibility of pain. Take food, take sex, take sports. The possibility of the pleasure of eating involves the pain of gluttony, obesity and all of the problems that come with it. The possibility of sexual pleasure involves the possibility of sexually transmitted diseases. Not to mention the psychological problems that, are, that come in those situations. The possibility of the enjoyment of sports involves sports injuries because there's an external fixed environment that we run into sometimes. So with the pursuit of knowledge, that which produces the knowledge to split an atom produces nuclear medicine that can shrink cancers. It can produce nuclear bombs that destroy Hiroshima. It invents dynamite that can blast through a tunnel, a rock, to build a tunnel. But then somebody else can use that dynamite to blow up the tunnel to terrorize people. See, the two things go together. And to demand that God continually keep on intervening to stop every single action without at the same time destroying free will, you can see now very clearly becomes a contradiction in terms. One carries the possibility and we live in a world where it has been actualized. And by the way, if there is somebody who still insists and says, I don't believe in it, here's a very simple effective, downright way to drive it home to him or her. And it's best to simply ask this question. Okay, you think God can do that? Would you like this? He, I'm just making up some of these things, but they're realistic enough. Ask this friend of yours. It's Saturday evening. You're going out bowling with your friends. And your wife says to you, Honey, I'm tired. I've had a really rough day. Just cancel your bowling today and stay at home with the kids and give me a break. Now that's what you ought to do. And you say, No, no, I'm going to go bowling. God makes the bowling ball disappear. You jump into the car and say, I'll rent a bowling ball. You start the car, the car won't start. It'll only start for your wife. <laughs> Would you like it? Or let's say you have a nice car which runs fine and you decide to buy a new car. You also know that three streets, three houses down the street, there's a poor family that needs a little bit of money. What you ought to do is to give them some money. How would you like it if God automatically zapped every other decision of yours? Except if you try to use the money to give it to them. Would you like it? All of a sudden he'll begin to find out that they're not really interested in God wanting to suspend the consequences of their free will choices. What they really mean when they get to things like that is stop his choices. Stop the evil that I feel but don't interfere with my freedom. It's a very practical way to drive home this point, I think. Okay, well, down, give me a few more minutes and let's get to the last level and with that we are finished. The last level goes something like this. Okay, I can't use evil to prove God doesn't exist. Okay, I, I admit that God didn't create evil, he only created good. Okay, I admit that God in creating free will creatures automatically, implicitly involved in that, the use of that free will to produce evil. Men have, and women have caused evil in this world. And okay, I acknowledge that I really don't want God to take away my freedom. But why couldn't he allow just some of the effects of the fall, as you say it? Why so much suffering? That's the last question we have to answer. Why didn't he act to limit at least the evil a little bit? There's two levels at which we can make that answer and with that we are finished. The first level is to examine a little bit carefully this concept of total amount of evil. 
Can we really add evil and suffering like we add oranges? I think not. This illustration might help. It helps me. Let's suppose I have one of my teeth starting to hurt. I suffer a certain amount of pain. A second tooth starts hurting. I suffer even more pain. If all 32 teeth, however many a man is supposed to have, start hurting, I feel a tremendous amount of pain. Let's call that 100 units of pain. Now let's say somebody else comes next to me and their teeth start hurting too. And all of their teeth start hurting. So they're also feeling that same 100 units of pain. What is the total amount of pain that's represented for the two of us? Arithmetic, you will say, what, 200 units of pain, of course. Until I stop to ask you the question, which one of us is suffering 200 units of pain? No one. The maximum any person can suffer, while it's a terrible amount of pain, to have all 32 teeth hurting, is still the maximum. If you add 100 more people in this room, every one of whom has got 32 teeth hurting, has it increased the amount of suffering that any given individual is actually facing? And the answer is no. In fact, you know, paradoxically, the opposite may be true. If everybody's got 32 hurting teeth, we sort of can take it a little bit easier than if we're the only one who was hurting. Have you thought about that for a while? So we have to think very carefully before we say, oh, so much suffering in this world. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not for one moment trying to minimize the awfulness of suffering and evil in this world. You've heard me preach enough times from this pulpit about our responsibility to a world of poor people. And you will keep on hearing about it. But here we are trying to remove intellectual roadblocks to giving Jesus Christ a fair hearing. And I think C.S. Lewis is right when he says that when we have reached the maximum any human being can suffer, undoubtedly we have reached something very, very horrible that ought to make us cry. But let's not talk about the sum total of evil in the world because no individual human being is ever suffering more than the maximum they can ever suffer. That's the first level at which we can answer the question. The second level is one that only Christians can, and after all, we are Christians who are trying to answer non-Christians, and, and theologically much more so. And that is, God has acted to limit evil. Yes, we can't add evil arithmetically, but God has acted in two very significant ways to limit evil. First of all, he has provided the uh, political and social order to restrain evil in this world. And if any one of us doubted that even our imperfect governments are actually working to limit evil, although it's getting harder and harder to believe, when, when Prime Minister Peterson would tell a bunch of high school students, use condoms and everything will be okay. I mean, that's an elected official of our province saying that. It seems harder to believe it, but generally it still does. The Watts riots in 1968, for example, in Los Angeles showed that ordinary, decent citizens resorted to looting when the restraints were gone. Remove the restraints, evil will spread. And so that's one th way in which God has limited it. But secondly, the most dramatic way in which God has acted to limit evil is in his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. You see, whatever problems we may have philosophically with evil, this point is undeniable, brothers and sisters, that our God did not remain a distant, unmoved, detached God who simply threw down philosophical and theological principles for us. He played the game, as Philip Yancey says in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? He played the game by the same rules he expects you and me to play. He became man and he suffered. And I jotted down, and this doesn't come from a whole amount of meditation. I didn't even have to think very much to put this down. Listen to how he suffered. First of all, he was born poor. He lived poor. He didn't have a... You know, he's the kind of person that if somebody picked up on the streets today would say of no fixed address. 
because Jesus didn't have a fixed address. He didn't even have a fixed bed. And when he died, all he had was the robe. And then look at the physical suffering that he faced upon the cross. Added to that was the emotional suffering and look at the range of emotional suffering. He knew what it was to pour out three years of his life and the best that he could give to twelve disciples and they couldn't understand. One of them betrayed him. Eleven of them deserted him at the time when he needed them most. He was rejected in public when the masses that he came to save shouted, Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. He was put to public shame when he hung naked, hung naked upon a cross. He knew what it was to be mocked upon and spit upon when people took his own promises and threw them back at him and said, Aha, son of Abraham, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So you would build this temple in three days. Let's see you do it again. Then we will believe you. They wagged their tongues on him and said, they actually, and you know what that means? That's like little kids doing like that. That's what it is. They wagged their tongues at him. We read these things and we just pass them over. And this is God, brothers and sisters, who went through all of this kind of thing for us. And then he was forsaken by God. You know, you and I think that we have been forsaken sometimes by God and we feel it. But in fact, we've never been forsaken by God. In Jesus' case, he was actually forsaken by God. And nobody has ever felt that pain as well. And yet, praise God, it is because of this identification with us and because of this kind of suffering that he crushed Lucifer who is the final, ultimate cause of all of the evil and suffering in the world. And when it was all over, God gave us one final proof that Lucifer was truly crushed and that Jesus was coming back again one day to finally get rid of evil once and for all. And that was when he raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. So when the curtain falls, when the last act is over, we will see that in spite of the evil, in spite of the suffering, in spite of all of these things, not only is there a God who is a God of love, but a sovereign, all-powerful God who has harnessed the very evil that has come out of free will of man and has used it to accomplish redemption in people's lives. And you know something? Having done it himself, he gives us the power to live in the face of evil and suffering. And that's what I want to talk about next week, the application of this whole principle. But I trust these few answers will at least enable you to sensitively give a reason to an honest inquirer who says, Mais pourquoi? A reason for the hope that is within you. That there is a God, He is loving, He is all-powerful, and He has acted to limit evil, and He has suffered with you and with me.